good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, everyone, wherever and whenever this may find you. Uh, my name is Aichu Chubukchu. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and co-director of LSE Human Rights at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, it is a pleasure to welcome you to our annual Human Rights Day lecture at, at LSE or through LSE and introduce our speaker today, Professor Sheila Ben-Habib. Uh, before we proceed, allow me to extend warm thanks to Medi Giles of the Department of Sociology and the whole LSE events team for all their work in making this conversation possible. Today, we're honored and thrilled to host Professor Ben Habib for our Human Rights Day lecture, which, as many of you will remember, was delivered by Professor Anthony Engi last academic year. Professor Ben Habib's work will require no introduction for anyone concerned with critical theory in and beyond the field of political philosophy. Nevertheless, let me say a few words about her remarkably productive tenure as a political theorist. Professor Ben Habib is currently Professor Emerita at Yale University since June 2020, and she now teaches at the Columbia Law School as a senior research fellow and professor of law adjunct with an affiliation in the philosophy department. Professor Ben Habib's, bo uh, ben Habib's books include Critique, Norm, and Utopia, a study of the four normative foundations of critical theory, which was published in 1986, Situating the Self, Gender, Community, and Postmodernism in Contemporary Ethics, published in 1992, her book with Judith Butler, Drusilla Cornell, and Nancy Fraser, Feminist Contentions, a Philosophical Exchange, published in 94, The Reluctant Modernism of Hannah Arendt, published in 96 and reissued in 20, uh, 2002, which is my go-to book whenever I feel conflicted about Arendt's contradictions. Uh, the Claims of Culture, Equality and Diversity in the Global Era, published in 2002. The Rights of Others, Aliens, Citizens and Residents, 2004. Another Cosmopolitanism, Hospitality, Sovereignty and Democratic Iterations with responses by Jeremy Waldron, Bonnie Honig and Will Kimlicka in 2006. Dignity in Adversity, Human Rights in Troubled Times, 2011. Equality and Difference, Human Dignity and Popular Sovereignty in the Mirror of Political Modernity, 2013. An Exile, Statelessness and Migration, playing chess with history from Hannah Arendt to Isaiah Berlin in 2018. Uh, Professor Ben Habib has also edited some eight volumes addressing themes ranging from discussions of communicative ethics to democracy and difference to identities, allegiances and affinities. One of these volumes, the highly acclaimed Migrations and Mobilities, Gender, Borders and Citizenship, which she edited with Judith Resnick, was named a choice outstanding book. Um, since we will be talking about cosmopolitanism today, allow me to also observe that among other languages, Professor Ben Habib's scholarship has been translated into German, Spanish, French, Italian, Turkish, Swedish, Russian, Serbo-Croatian, Hebrew, Japanese, Chinese, Portuguese, and Persian. 
I could go on and on uh, about her accomplishments, all the honorary degrees, the editorship, uh, but I want to leave as much time as possible for the rare chance we have to have this discussion with uh, Professor Ben Habib. Uh, her lecture, the title of our Human Rights Day lecture this year is the end of the 1951 Refugee Convention with a question mark, which draws on an article Professor Ben Habib has published earlier this year. So um, we will today, uh, let me remind everyone that this event is being audio recorded and broadcasted live over social media. Uh, so if you want to watch what you say, please watch what you say. Uh, and barring technical difficulties, we will soon make the recording available as a video on YouTube and also as a podcast on LSE's website. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Human Rights Day. After Professor Ben Habib's lecture, which will last for about 40, 45 minutes, I will pose her a few questions before I open up the floor to the audience towards a collective discussion, which will last for another 40, 45 minutes or so. And audience members could use the Q&A function uh, on Zoom or Facebook comments to pose their questions. And I will voice the questions for Professor Ben Habib. Uh, normally, we would then move towards a reception and a dinner, but given our new norms under COVID-19, that will have to wait for another time. So uh, without further ado and with much anticipation, please join me in welcoming Professor Sheila Ben-Habib to deliver our annual Human Rights Day lecture this year. Thank you very much, Professor Ben-Habib. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Aicha, for this uh, generous and kind introduction. Uh, thank you to the LSE for inviting me to deliver the human rights lecture this year. It's a real pleasure and uh, an honor. And thank you to the Department of Sociology for hosting and making this event um, uh, possible. Okay. Um, as we all know, the plight of the refugees sometimes referred to as the refugee crisis of our times has dominated uh, media um, in um, many parts, many parts of the world um, for the last uh, for the last two uh, decades. And uh, one of the last um, events, of course, which shocked our um, uh, consciences uh, with the world is this um, fire at the refugee camp on in Moria, uh, Greece, this uh, this uh, September. These images could be could be reproduced, but today, what I would like to do is I would like to address the broader issues and currents. Uh, that are hidden behind this term, quote unquote, the refugee uh, crisis. And I will look at uh, the main legal document that governs what I'd like to call the transnational movement of people across borders. And then I'd like to set this legal document also against the background of broader developments which 
uh, I shall name territorialization and de-territorialization, uh, but a, a number of terminological clarifications before I uh, begin. Uh, we use the term refugee uh, to refer to an aggregate uh, group, but uh, according to the more technical uh, terminology used by um, uh, legal practitioners, scholars in the field, etc., cetera, uh, it's more appropriate to talk about forcibly displaced persons worldwide. Indeed, this is the highest number of uh, people we have uh, seen. Uh, according to UNHCR numbers, we have 70 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. Only uh, uh, close to 26 million are refugees because official definitions refer to refugees as those who cross international borders. There are 14.3 million internally displaced peoples. Uh, just to try to concretize this for you, we know that the Rohingya uh, within Myanmar itself will be internally displaced, but when they cross the border to Bangladesh, they would be referred to as, um, as uh, refugees. Five and a half million uh, people stand under UN uh, protection. This is the United uh, Nations Relief and Works Agency for uh, Palestine since 1948 and uh, 1968 um, uh, wars. Now, uh, there are some new uh, trends that uh, arise as a consequence of worldwide developments in technology and economics, which I will go into greater detail in a, in a second. Uh, let me just uh, use the subheadings territorialization, deterritorialization to refer to that, which I will define. But I want to say in the domain of transnational movements, whether for migratory purposes or refuge and asylum seeking purposes, right? And these are distinct. What we are seeing is a phenomenon called crim migration. That is criminalization of migration. And this criminalization of migration applies both to refugees and also to ordinary, to ordinary migrants. And uh, um, I think these developments are true both for the European Union, the United States, uh, Australia, etc. The second aspect of uh, this new trend is privatization. That is increasingly the outsourcing by state actors of their responsibilities to private actors, be it in the domain of airport controls, visa controls, or more reprehensibly, as we will see in a second, beat the, the use of private forces to intercept refugee movements and prevent them from um, uh, reaching the territory where they wish to claim asylum. A third um, uh, uh, trend is securitization. Along with crime migration and privatization, there is the emergence of 
security agencies and measures. Again, these are quite common both to the European Union with the rise of Frontex and to the United States, um, as I shall discuss in a second, with the developments going on uh, in the US-Mexico uh, um, uh, Mexico, uh, border. So these sociological, technological transformations are taking place within a context of a normative state order. So I'm going to try to move um, along two axes in this lecture. I will both look at larger uh, social developments, socioeconomic developments, but I'll also look much more closely than is usually done at the legal documents that govern interstate, intrastate behavior. I'd like to um, uh, say that uh, the world order that we are currently uh, inhabiting is a dualistic one. On the one hand, we have the principle of territorially circumscribed state sovereignty, which is one of the pillars of the international order. And on the other hand, we have the increasing development and expansion of a domain of international human rights and conventions since uh, 1948 and increasing increasing extension of multilateral human rights and covenants, the most well-known of which the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Convention on the Elimination Against All Dis Discrimination Against Women, etc., etc. And I'd like to say, um, without uh, much detail right now, what we are also experiencing is the so-called tense relationship between these covenants and state commitments and the notion of territorially circumscribed state uh, uh, sovereignty. The, uh, this um, uh, requires some elucidation uh, further uh, further on. Now, by deterritorialization, uh, I'm referring to a well-known phenomenon uh, much acknowledged by uh, social scientists. And this is, of course, uh, the rise of a world economy, or rather the development of a world economy to what is financially, to what is often referred to as a form of neoliberal financial financial globalization. Okay. Again, um, uh, for my purposes, the important thing is uh, that here, neoliberal financial globalization also requires the emergence of transnational and translegal processes and instruments that make the functioning of this economy possible. And we all know that 
this huge transformation has always has also been greatly enabled by the development of the worldwide web and the new technologies in social media and in other domains. In fact, uh, uh, neoliberal financial globalization and uh, the World Wide Web and means of communication go together and interact uh, uh, with uh, one another. So deterritorialization basically means that the movement of capital, news, goods, entertainment, viruses, microbes, everything uh, moves across uh, state borders and at an increasingly fast pace um, that defy the capacities of um, very often of state control. And to use Saskia Sesson's famous word, again, this generates the impression quote unquote, of losing, losing control. But the paradox in this situation, uh, in this expansion of deterritorialization is that the human body is a body in place. The human person is embodied. The human person hasn't yet <laughs> been uh, disintegrated into electronic signs, although we're talking yet, but you know, there is a physicality, there is still uh, the materiality of the human body and the person. So this generates the odd uh, situation that at a point when, as a consequence of deterritorialization, states have lost control of much movement across their boundaries, the human body is becomes the site on which the control of the state is exercised. And this is one of the, I think, uh, sad paradoxes of migratory and refugee movements of our time, that if you wish, the whole um, power and uh, force of the state comes bearing upon individual um, movement. Now, how is this normatively regulated? How is this possible? What makes this um, what makes this this order act the way the way it does? Okay. And here we have to look at the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. Uh, this convention is uh, formulated. Um, with the memory of uh, uh, two world wars, uh, the Holocaust and genocide. And it is one of the most important and foundational human rights documents of the post-war period. And of course, uh, the title of my lecture with a question mark at the end is an invitation for us to think about um, the implications of our uh, commitment um, to, to, the, uh, uh, to this convention. It was adopted in July 28, 1951 and entered into force in April 22, 1954. And uh, there is a 1967 protocol. 
The important thing about the 1967 protocol is that it tried to eliminate uh, the, <clears throat> the time and space limits that restricted the status of refugees to a phenomenon uh, occurring in Europe before 19, before 1951. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is a very important and somewhat neglected neglected point that the refugee uh, convention uh, defines the refugee as a person who, as a result of events occurring before uh, in Europe before 1951 and owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion nationality, membership of a particular group or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality or is unable or unwilling owing to a well-grounded fear to avail himself of the protection in that, of that country. Now, uh, uh, important to keep in mind, let's look at every aspect um, of this, of this uh, definite, 1961 protocol universalizes the definition of a convention refugee. A convention refugee is no longer a person engaging in flight as a consequence of events occurring in Europe and before 19, before 1951. So what we have with the implementation of the protocol, we have a universalization, or if you wish, a globalization of the refugee definition. But I want to talk about two major issues in the Refugee Convention um, and uh, try to illustrate the way in which this is affecting many of the events that we see around one. And uh, we receive this as the public as news, but we may not quite know why it is that these are happening the way the way uh, uh, they are? Why does it? So the first issue that I want to address is difficulties in doctrinal interpretation and application, and the second is the question of state behavior. Now the next slide shows the total number of states that are parties to the 1951 Convention. Uh, there are 145 in number. That means that there are roughly 50, less than 50 states world over that are not party to the convention. The most consequential of these being a very large state like India. Okay. Now there are other states like the United States who are parties to the protocol, but not to the convention. I don't think we need to worry about the legalistic, the legalistic implications of this. But since the 51 convention, there have been a number of regional instruments that have been developed to address what are seen as difficulties and loopholes in the 51 Convention. The 51 Convention itself has not been revised since the 67 Protocol 
And um, if you talk with legal practitioners and international lawyers, they will say to you, we know the problems, but please don't touch them because we will never achieve this kind of a convention again. But what are the problems? What are the, the important issues? First, um, I don't want to scroll back to many, too many slides here for fear of losing the sequence, but the, the concept of a well-founded fear. How do you establish well-founded fear? According to UNHCR guidelines, you can talk about subjective fear and objective fear. Subjective fear is the individual psychological state. Objective fear are established by human rights reports, by observers about persecution, human rights violations going on in that country. Uh, different jurisdictions interpret the uh, concept of well-founded fear differently, but the notion of the well-founded fear that it must be proven one way or another leads to this necessity of the refugee who seeks asylum of having quote unquote, the famous asylum interview and being recognized as an asylee only as a consequence of this, this interview. And as you can imagine, uh, this is, these interview processes are subject to great legal discussions and also subject to abuses, et cetera. Now in recognition of the somewhat narrow refugee definition and the procedure applied, Latin American countries have taken the lead um, many times to try to broaden the refugee definition. And one of the most important regional instruments is the Cartagena Declaration on Refugees, uh, which is a reporter of the Inter-American Committee uh, Commission on Human Rights, it introduces the condition of generalized violence. Again, why is this important? It's important because the 1951 convention, it is said, but maybe I can go back to the, to the slide for just one second. It is the 1951 convention names what are called five protected groups, individuals persecuted on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular uh, uh, social uh, group. Uh, this actually means that there is an enormous burden of proof on the individual and the asylum granting officials to conform, okay, what they are doing to these five protected groups or to, to, to say that uh, the procedure of admission to asylum status has come under one of these five protected groups. In the last number of years, particularly in the domain of gender and sexual identity related crimes, 
there have been developments that have pushed this notion of membership in a particular social group, for example, Canada and uh, the United States now do accept do accept female genital mutilation, individuals escaping female genital mutilation as grounds for refugee status recognition and increasingly certain forms of arranged marriages, but also the status of gay and trans individuals that is becoming uh, grounds for worldwide, worldwide persecution. So um, at the doctrinal level, at the doctrinal level, a lot of development has had to take place under this vague category of membership in a social group. So um, Latin America is, um, uh, sorry, the, uh, was one of the first initiated. Another regional uh, instrument is that governing the specific refugee problems in Africa. And this is um, also important because it applies now the term refugee to every person who owing to external occupation, foreign domination, etc., is compelled to leave his habitual place of residence for events seriously disturbing disturbing public public uh, order. Okay. What implications does the internal internationalization of the convention have? And by the internationalization, I mean that with the 1967 protocol, uh, the definition of a convention refugee is no longer restricted. Uh, to events occurring in Europe prior to 1951, okay? The irony among the many, many ironies and paradoxes of the situation is that the internationalization of the convention has not meant equitable and worldwide responsibility sharing. Not at all. In fact, despite all the hue and cry of the world's major liberal democracies, it is still the third world and developing countries of the world that have the largest number of refugees among themselves. Turkey, for in last years, in recent years, has emerged as leading the refugee numbers with three and a half to 3.7 million Syrian refugees. Pakistan has 1.4, Uganda 1.2, Lebanon close to a million, Iran 980,000, Bangladesh undoubtedly also as a consequence of the Rohingya crisis, 932,000. Among these countries, only Germany reaches from Europe comes close with 1.1 million refugees. And I have these figures from the statistical yearbook of the UNHCR, April 2020. Now, I will just mention one more doctrinal issue in the 51 convention, and then I'll turn to state behavior. What are states doing? How are they handling 
their obligations. And this is the distinction between economic migrants versus, versus refugees. I think both at an analytical level and at a jurisprudential level, it's very difficult to distinguish between economic deprivation and political persecution. They lead to one another. One sometimes causes the other. You can find the same groups, particularly political persecution leads to economic deprivation. And those you know, who are economically deprived usually uh, have some form uh, of persecution to point to. But nonetheless, we operate with this fiction. We operate states and the public and the world order operate with the fiction that we can have a legitimate analytically viable distinction between those who leave the countries who, to seek economic betterment as opposed to refugees escaping persecution. But again, this is one of the issues that one says, no, 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 don't touch it. We will never get consensus around it. Let me just flag this problem. Okay, so what is, what is really happening um, on the ground? Yeah? In view of these broad deterritorialization movements and in view of the normative obligations generated by the convention for the signatory states, what is going on? What is going on is that states themselves are contributing to deterritorialization. That is to say, they are pushing away from their territory uh, refugees now through various mechanisms of outsourcing. So outsourcing is not only happening in industry and services and manufacture, but it's also happening in the domain of refugee uh, protection. Uh, the, one of the best known examples of this is the Italian maritime guards outsourcing the prevention of migrants from reaching Europe to Libyan security forces. Um, we have all seen uh, this, uh, the plight of the uh, Aquarius uh, vessel, right? Uh, the Aquarius was a vessel that in the summer of 2018 set off from Libya with 629 people on board, many um, tra people traveling, uh, minors, pregnant women, etc. It was denied admission to Italy by Matteo Salvini and the ship was wandering around the Mediterranean uh, for several weeks before it was granted admission to the port of um, uh, Valencia. Uh, the plight of the Aquarius is something that um, uh, has been uh, repeated for other vessels. And this is a consequence of the fact that in 2015, the Italian Maritime Re Rescue Coordination Center ceased its activities in Eastern Mediterranean and um, basically outsourced its save and rescue operations, in particular to the Libyan uh, Coast Guard. Excuse me. 
And since 2014, the Mediterranean has become a sea of death. We've had 14,000 migrant deaths since 2014. And I will not have time to go into it right now, but it's not just that the rescue uh, maritime operations have ceased and um, these uh, coast guards um, uh, are operating um, uh, basically almost like sea pirates, but we also have had instances in the Mediterranean when um, governments have tried to prevent civil society rescue operations from uh, saving uh, migrants. Another instance of this deterritorialization phenomenon is that airports become the strange spaces. Airports, on the one hand, are spaces, it seems, of non-sovereignty. And at the same time, airports are spaces where there are refugee holding pens, refugee um, um, holding domains, Frankfurt Airport, for example. Okay? And uh, the airport also becomes the first uh, territory uh, for the one trying to access another territory that and airlines and um, uh, uh, become sort of like control uh, control agencies, right? This is increasingly, particularly also since the rise of terrorism in the United States, 911, it's like the securitization of worldwide um, uh, uh, travel. A, a pretty amazing instance of outside sourcing and deterritorialization happened in 2001 when Australia simply excised some parts of its territory. Christmas Islands, the reef, Cocoa Islands, Australia simply said it no longer wants to have control over these territories and anybody who reached, let's say, ships that reached from Malaysia and other places, this domain, they literally ended up, you know, in no one's water. Then there was an agreement eventually reached with Papua New Guinea so that maritime arrivals would not land on Australian territory, but would be diverted to the famous Manus Island. This is why, um, although, you know, we've all read about the jungle, okay, the jungle, that territory on northwest France trying to cross into the United Kingdom, referred to as the jungle by the, by the refugees. Again, the, 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 this is a space uh, until the French government er asserted a responsibility. It was a space of extra territoriality. Um, where uh, no one really wanted to take uh, much uh, responsibility. Now, uh, the most important outsourcing argument agreement, important in the sense of the implications that it has for Europe, was signed in 2015 uh, between the European Union and Turkey. At the start, this committed Turkey to preventing by force, if necessary, 
refugees crossing from uh, into the EU and in return, uh, the UN could settle one refugee under official mandate, whatever. This stopped and UNHCR has ended its activities in Turkey. And um, uh, there is still a bit of a hiccup between the money that the European Union promised to Turkey for its protection of Syrian refugees. But important point here is that Turkey is one of these countries that is signatory to the 1951 convention, but not to its protocol, which means that refugees reaching Turkey from Afghanistan, Iran, Africa, these are not convention refugees because they do not er originate uh, via uh, Europe. Okay? So Turkey has its own legislation dealing with Syrian and other refugees. And the question is, of course, whether Turkey's own legislation dealing with refugees is in compliance with the 51 convention or not. And there is some, there is some debate about this. And as um, you may be able to see here, the flag here is not the flag of the UNHCR, but it is the uh, flag of the Turkish Red Cross. Before slowly coming down to some kind of a conclusion, let me say a few things about the United States. Yeah? Uh, the United uh, States has um, been described, I think is Michael Ignatieff, as engaging in American exceptionalism mutating into exemptionalism. And what is meant by this is that although the United States has been at the forefront of many international agreements and human rights conventions in the post-war period. It has always claimed a certain exemptionalism for itself. Thus, the US was a high contracting party to the 51 convention with many American lawyers engaged in the process of drafting the convention, but it did not accede to the convention. It acceded to the protocol but another feature of US law is that human rights conventions do not become part of US law until, until there is congressional accession to it. And this has become increasingly difficult in recent years with an obstructionist uh, Senate and the growth of an isolationist Republican opposition within the US Senate that makes it almost, that makes it impossible really uh, to exceed uh, human rights uh, agreements and uh, conventions. So the US Congress did not pass uh, the Refugee Act until 1980, but the Refugee Act did accept the 67 convention together uh, with uh, the 51 convention aspects of it. So this is good law. To this day, it is uh, good law in the United States. Uh, so what we have in fact seen in recent years is not only crim migration, criminalization of migration, but we have seen in my opinion and in the opinion of 
many other scholars and practitioners, we have seen gross violations of the 51 Convention. The detention of mothers and children uh, coming from um, uh, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador already started in 2014 under President uh, Obama as a consequence of many of the uh, securitization acts that passed after 2001 and never uh, um, uh, were um, removed. We have the violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act itself that incorporates the um, Refugee Act because we are now seeing increasingly non-refoulement. That is non-refoulement, which is the principle uh, of the Refugee Convention that if you are a signatory, you have a, an obligation not to refoule, that is pushed back the refugee applying for asylum. Increasingly, we have asylum seekers pushed over the border to Mexico with physical threats, lies, and other uh, methods. Or we have refugees who are increasingly held as criminals, almost, in immigration and detention centers that have themselves now become part of the growth of the carceral's, carceral state, which is a multi-million dollar business with these detention centers dotting the um, Mexico and uh, US border in Texas and California. So, conclusion. <laughs> It's rather, it's rather a question, a conclusion, okay? Deterritorialization and all these developments I have named above delinks the bond between territory, jurisdiction, and the public in whose name and with whose authorization law and coercion are exercised. Uh, this is the, the main um, point I want to I want to emphasize that for democracies in particular, the law is exercised in the name of the people. Deterritorialization is a process of delinking territory jurisdiction and democratic accountability. Violeta Moreno Lux and Martin Lamberg Peterson called this distance-creating strategies. These distance-creating strategies undermine democratic accountability by removing, literally and metaphorically, okay? literally in that you don't see what's being enacted in your name, and metaphorically in the name that the distances uh, 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 created are also themselves um, part of the social and political imaginary of democratic public. So these distance creating strategies make it harder and harder to exercise democratic accountability over these procedures. So I want to conclude by a quotation from a, I believe Nigerian uh, journalist uh, who, 
whose work sort of um, alerted me uh, to the danger danger of the current of the current situation. Um, uh, not just at the level of refugee crisis, but as she puts it, a pillar of the liberal order is collapsing, but does anyone care? Okay? Around the world, she writes, rich and poor countries alike are pulling up their drawbridges, slashing the number of refugees they are willing to accept and denying asylum to those who have been admitted in the past. In Africa, Asia, and South America, the mood is much the same. And of course, COVID-19 has only exacerbated uh, this condition. I want to leave you with this question. And I think it is important for us as democratic citizens, world citizens, cosmopolitans, and not, uh, to become aware of the larger trends uh, that hide, are behind the headlines and the news items that we are fed uh, every day um, uh, all around uh, the world. So what is our responsibility? Should we let the 1951 Refugee Convention go to dust. I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ben Habib, for a very stimulating lecture. And that final question, do we have any responsibility uh, for preventing this convention uh, going to the dustbin of history? I want to begin uh, by the question that you left us with. Um, and raise the question of who is this we in your imagination that has a responsibility towards refugees? I read the article on which your lecture tonight was based, and this question emerged for me as well when I was reading the article by the same name for the audience members. Uh, it was published this summer. Uh, I was left with a question over your own imagination of the proper demos that is responsible for the protection of refugees. Is it humanity? Uh, is it global community, international community? Is it particular nation states, um, demoses that we're talking about? The reason I ask this question is you propose a cosmopolitan agenda, what you call a cosmopolitan interdependence as distinct from liberal internationalism. And I thought perhaps we could speak a little bit about that distinction and your own imagination of responsibility um, uh, for the situation, the predicament of refugees. In particular, you said in the article version this, what I'm arguing here is not, it's not a plea for a borderless world. And I was hoping you could say a bit more about that. Why not? Why isn't this a plea for a borderless world? I'll start with that. 
Uh, yes, thank you, Aicha. These are these are fundamental questions, and um, I wanted to, you know, not go into greater detail about the normative implications in this lecture, but they're but they're obviously obviously there. There is now an increasingly narrow construction that some political philosophers, legal analysts, are using about responsibility for human rights. And in all of my work in the last 20 years or so, I have been um, going against this trend. And uh, the narrow construction of uh, human rights is that what sense does it make to speak of human rights unless there is an addressee, specific addressee on whom this is um, placing a burden of uh, compliance, uh, either omission or commission. Now, human rights are both moral claims and uh, legal claims. Some human rights are more specifically legal claims and arise as a result of the you know, specific agreements, treaties, etc. But uh, human rights in general also, in particular, someone, uh, something like the claim of the refugee to non-refoulement, uh, uh, not being sent back uh, to the territory where they are being persecuted, etc. This is a fun fundamental human rights claim, which uh, goes back um, uh, to the principle of hospitality uh, in human culture, exercised very widely cross-culturally. So I want to say that this attempt to narrow the refugee claim to uh, territorial obligations alone, okay? So I, Australia, do not recognize Cocoa Islands as part of my territorial jurisdiction, and therefore if a ship full of, you know, refugees, is just from Malaysia comes and sinks. This is not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, there are other legal issues of that. So I am arguing, arguing against this, and I am emphasizing the generalized human obligation at a moral level that many human rights claims um, uh, um, uh, have. So that's been sort of uh, my principle, my principle, you know, um, uh, argument, and what I call an acknowledgement of cosmopolitan interdependence. Uh, we are increasingly in a situation in the world where we have interdependence without solidarity, mm -hmm. and uh, the. Um, COVID uh, virus, if you wish, is a kind of brilliant metaphor for how human interdependence and human, the human causal nexus cannot be interrupted. And yet, you know, we feel ourselves, we don't exercise solidarity. Look, for me, one of the biggest ironies of this was, right, I mean, you know, we had a, a president talking about the China virus. And yet the first masks that reached me in the United States, in New York, Massachusetts, etc., were produced in China, right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, we deny 
as if we can localize the virus, but on the other hand, our interdependence is such that um, we are, you know, part of uh, of this um, uh, human. Well, you can't quite call it community, <laughs> in the sense that um, uh, we do not have thick enough norms and values that are that are shared. Some are developing and emerging. So I see my work not descriptively. My work is critical and anticipatory. It has always had this ambition. I try to think for a world that is to come a veneer because mm -hmm. justice is always to come. One of Derrida's, Jacques That's Derrida's famous phrases, which I, I uh, um, uh, uh, subscribe subscribe to. And in this context, liberal interdependence, um, that is um, democratic liberalism that accepts the power of, and the normative force of international law, and that sees states as principal actors of the world community, that wishes to respect international law. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? There is a great deal with this picture uh, that I can support, but it still analytically rests upon uh, an ontology of containment. The idea mm -hmm. is always containment, containing human movement, legalizing, regularizing. So my critique of uh, liberal internationalism, I think first it's um, sociological critique, social theoretical critique. I just don't buy the picture of society and societal trends that you get at this normative level. It's a frozen, it's a frozen uh, picture. I mean, I think that um, sometimes literary thinkers who talk about borderlands and borderings and who point out the ambivalence of borderings have more of a purchase than normative, you know, uh, philosophers who mm -hmm. want to see uh, the border as a static mm -hmm. line or boundary to be protected. Borders emerge. Borders interrupt people's uh, lives across border borderlands. I mean, the Mexico-U.S. is a borderland, you know, and increasingly, let's say. The Turkish-Syria border has become a, a, a borderland. There are many, many instances of this, North Africa and Eastern Mediterranean, the interdependence of peoples over history and, and culture. So we can, we can just fixate ourselves on this ontology of containment. Mm -hmm. And um, then your final question, okay, if one is willing to go this far in the argument, then why not a world without borders? Mm -hmm. I have asked myself this question many times. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that um, I believe the two, two points. Uh, we need public accountability. We need public responsibility. And in the absence of worldwide institutions, that would bear that public responsibility, okay? A world without borders 
would not be uh, a, a world of um, peaceful, free movement. It would be it would be a chaotic world. It would be a conflictual world. Mm-hmm. So um, either we keep working together and building up more and more viable institutions of international responsibility, along with the UNHCR, which itself has a lot of problems, but but maybe something mm-hmm. something more, something more, right? Mm-hmm. And um, a, a, that could really execute international cooperation. And we know that this is, you know, we are at a point of such unbelievable state and national egoism right now, and fear adds to it. My second point, and then I'll, uh, stop, I'm sorry, I've gone on for long because these are crucial parts of my argument and I'm so glad that you gave me a chance to bring them up. The other question is the relationship between a jurisdiction and democratic self-governance. Mm-hmm. Whether you see cosmopolitanism it, it, you know, it does not mean that we do not respect, um, that we have to respect that link between jurisdiction and self-governance. I think what cosmopolitanism does, it pushes our imagination uh, towards formulating those jurisdictional units. Mm -hmm. Cities, right? Cities are centers of cosmopolitan interaction, imagination, um, regions. And we know there is a wide discussion uh, within the European Union itself about uh, the growing significance of regions. And there is also a lot of good work uh, that uh, about cities, you know, could mayors l- live, you know, or rule the world, you know, was Benjamin mm-hmm. Barber's, you know, famous, famous uh, book. So these would be the two reasons why I can't mm-hmm. quite imagine a world without any borders. I have uh, a response to that, but our questions are accumulating. Thank you very much. I mean, if I did have time, I would raise the question of, isn't a transnational democracy possible if, if you tie so tightly democratic possibility to national jurisdiction, then I wonder what happens to the fate or possibility or the avenir of a democracy to come beyond the nation state. Um, So, but I want to turn now to one of the questions about, there's a question, uh, I read it very quickly and now I can't find it, but it was raising the question of rising authoritarianism and xenophobia around the world and asking for the basis, how can uh, a mobilization for refugee rights be effected within countries such as Brazil, the question asked. Um, where you have this rising xenophobia, one could add Turkey to that mix, and uh, of course the United States. How do you interpret this tension? Um, so, do you yeah. would you prefer me to voice a couple of questions, or would you prefer to respond to this one? Uh, I think that as long as we have some time now, you know, we have another yes. twenty minutes. Yes. Why don't we just, you know, take questions singly, Ben, maybe uh, I'll try to keep my answers brief and 
towards the end, I'd like to hear uh, questions. We can we can um, uh, bunch them bunch them up. But just one clarification about transnational, you know, democracy. When I established the link between jurisdiction and unit of jurisdiction, uh, as I said, the nation is not the only or even the primary unit of jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. transnational democracy can extend. You can have larger or smaller, you know, and so that's, that's the, the rise of worldwide xenophobia. Look, um, uh, we are, <laughs> what happened to my screen? Uh, we are going through a period um, of a kind of neo-fascism. Uh, I um, have avoided that word for, um, many months, but I'm not going to avoid it anymore, uh, just because it doesn't look like, you know, stormtroopers, organized mass parties, it does not mean that what we are going through is not that. We have a frontal attack on uh, the idea of democratic governance. Uh, we have a frontal attack on institutions of liberal representations freedom of the press, freedom of the universities, freedom of science, um, uh, basically human rights of opposition and, uh, and assembly, but also the rise of a kind of white masculinist rhetoric. And Brazil Bolsonaro, together with Trump, is exemplary of the rise of this homophobic, anti-women, anti-transgender, regressive masculinity mm -hmm. that also has a rage against nature. Hmm? Mm -hmm. You know, these all makes me think about the old themes of the dialectic of enlightenment, Adorno and Horkheimer that not mm -hmm. only do we repress the nature within, but we also repress the nature uh, outside. So under these circumstances, the refugee becomes the symbolic outsider that threatens this mythic identity and unity of the nation they want to build. Okay. I mean, um, Brazil has many refugees from Haiti, it is a multiracial, it used to be one of the world's largest multiracial democracies. Now it's an authoritarian neo-fascistic regime. Mm -hmm. In the uh, United States, the superego of the country, we are a country of immigrants, we are a country of immigrants, but no, we don't want the Mexicans, we don't want the uh, Guatemalans, we don't want the Muslims, we don't want this. These are... Um, images uh, of uh, fear that get projected onto the other. And this politics of fear works very well. Mm -hmm. This is very, very difficult to fight against, but we have to. We have, no, yeah. we have no other choice. We just have to understand the dynamic that the refugee becomes, the, the migrant in general, becomes the symbol of the other that needs to be extirpated, if you wish, from the body politic, what? Mm -hmm. In order to achieve some kind of non-existent mythic 
unity, which really basically means the hegemony of one of one group. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, okay, I will ask two questions now from our audience. One is from Yazan Dogen, who is an assistant professor in anthropology at LSE. So the question is, at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned the deterritorialization of capital and the financialization of economies as part of the neoliberal restructuring of the world. One could also add that this financialization is, in fact, at the heart of the kind of problems you're trying to address. In a sense, the reluctance of states to admit refugees is usually made in the name of protecting the economic well-being of the nation. A, a, a moral imperative, if you like, that is at odds with hospitality. Don't you think that pointing out the fictitious distinction between economic migrants and refugees is actually central to the critique you're trying to make and should not be so easily brushed aside? In other words, should not any rethinking of the 1951 convention require getting rid of the distinction between human rights and social justice altogether? Why keep social justice and human rights apart as two distinct frameworks? Um, and the second question I want to raise is by Irene Chen, who is the UNHCR consultant's global advisor on LGBTQ plus refugee protection. Uh, this person is asking, what principles would you advise international humanitarian practitioners to keep in mind to balance state sovereignty, subnational agency, and international human rights norms? How could the 1951 Convention and 1967 Protocol be updated to ensure public accountability? So uh, let's take these two questions. They're huge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they are huge and difficult, and they are somewhat they are somewhat related. Um, why want to still distinguish the human rights and social justice uh, social justice frameworks? Or uh, I can also put it in this way: What, in fact, is the relationship any between? the human rights framework of the 51 convention and what is also called global distributive or global mm -hmm. redistributive, um, redistributive justice. There is now a significant movement among post-colonial theorists who work on refugee issues um, uh, to begin to question nations' right to exclude. Mm -hmm. the right to exclude. And um, uh, this is uh, rattling at one of the chief pillars of uh, sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And um, I am, um, I, I think that this goes in very well uh, with this perspective that I'm trying to develop against an ontology of containment, an ontology of interdependence. Inter, uh, uh, but the pillar of jurisdictional <laughs> uh, territoriality, as 
Miss Chan knows very well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very, very unlikely, even if it is a normative fiction, it will remain, it will remain as a normative, uh, normative fiction, I'm, I'm afraid. However, um, once we move towards an ontology of interdependence, uh, let me try to explain uh, how I'm uh, thinking about this. Let's take the case of the European Union. <laughs> the UK is an in and out, you're probably now out, but what exactly is happening between um, Africa and uh, Spain and uh, Africa and Italy? Okay, the defensive language is, oh, you know, there are traffickers, they are exploiting the poor refugees and so on. Uh, we have to put it in the context of also growing desertification in Africa. Okay, we have to ask ourselves how protective measures of the European Union, let's say France, protecting its own agriculture has impacted certain kind of developments within Africa itself. There are studies about cotton growers, right? Mm -hmm. Within the United States, in the case of the United States, we cannot understand the movement of people from what is called the Northern Triangle to the United States without understanding at least two things. First of all, these states are narco states, very often built by the US police and military over mm -hmm. the years in order to stop drug production and transportation, okay? So the United States bears a certain responsibility for building up an narco state. And many of the gangs in these countries are themselves state paramilitaries, again, this is not a mystery, it's out there. Mm -hmm. The second thing is the failure of coffee crop under changing climatic conditions. So when people come to us, and here I'm supporting the social justice argument, when people come and knock on the door, it's happening not because you know uh, they are this or that, and it's, just, it's happening also because of these wider questions of socioeconomic interdependence. Okay, isn't mm -hmm. this then an argument? Just scrap the human rights, you know, document and so. No, I think we need to understand. We need to understand their fundamental interrelationship without wanting to reduce one to the other. Human mm -hmm. rights guarantee due process, equality under the law, habeas corpus, a right to counsel, yeah? Human, they are about the relationship to power and to accountability. We, we need to have them both. I don't see an either or here at all. I don't mm -hmm. see an either, either or, and I'm saying, since we do have these very strong human rights instruments, let us keep them, let us build, uh, build on them while analytically as social researchers, legal analysts, we have to think about the refugee problem, not just as a problem of persecution, which it is. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the South American refugees, these women are raped their children are forced to go into gangs. 
they are coerced, they are beaten. So these are also very, very, these are human rights violations. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Um, <laughs> the second question is from Miss Chan. It's 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 a very it's a it's a very difficult one, and I mean I I there are so many dimensions dimensions uh, of it uh, because there is the question of LBGTQ rights that has been raised, and then there is the question of uh, sub uh, national. Uh, agency, which I don't think is quite the same, uh, quite the same issue. Hmm. And, and, you know, I think at the level of LGBTQ rights, I think uh, we just have to keep pushing uh, the legal instruments of the convention, maybe even to the breaking point. I mean, I want to acknowledge here the work of uh, James Hathaway, Michelle Foster, who is at Oxford, Hathaway who is at the University of Michigan. I mean, there has been tremendous work done here to uh, bring up the very concept, uh, to interrelate the concept of a well-founded fear and LBGTQ harms to individuals. I find the question of subnational agencies um, uh, fascinating because um, I think, as we know, uh, the greatest burden of refugee reception is falls on localities. This is always one of the ironies. Borders are controlled nationally or transnationally, but refugees live in the locality because the human body <laughs> is situated mm -hmm. Okay, and this goes a little bit also to the question of political costs that the first issue, the first had raised. I um, am a great believer in strengthening regions because I believe these kinds of issues can only really be solved uh, regionally with the help of transnational umbrella uh, umbrella organizations. So uh, I I. I don't know how, um, you know, maybe um, I shall stop there and um, appreciate uh, both questions, uh, very difficult issues. Yeah, thank you. I'll raise two more questions and the, that that will be the final uh, questions um, for you your reflection. The rest, I can't promise that I'll have time. To <laughs> They're long. Last They're long. Of my teaching, but I'd like to see what the questions were. Yes, I. I think I can read out two more. One is uh, from Angela Naimo from the United States. Do you see the U.S. as a punitive democracy, as Nicole Fleetwood and other critics of the U.S. carceral state describe it? If punishment and policing had been a main response to refugee movements, intrastate and internationally, should we continue calling for state accountability? And another question is uh, from another colleague from the US, Anita Starosta. She says, is it possible to trace connections between the end of the rights of men and the end of the refugee convention? If so, are the two continuous? 
And do they mark different moments, different paradigms, or are they perhaps overlapping? And I raise this question because you address Arendt in your article and come actually uh, address aspects of this question that uh, people might be interested in to hear. Um, I'll read one more question then. What can the framework for refugee, this is from Kaliani Yeola, what can the framework for refugees coming out of forcible occupation of nations such as Tibet, Hong Kong, uh, etc., by countries like China? Do the governments in exile establish, uh, can they really work? Is it an example of borderless or stateless government? Mm. Um, Yes, I think that those will take our eight minutes. Apologies to the rest of the audience for not being yes, able to address. You will, you will send them. Uh, yes, uh, we all have a record of the questions. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let me let me just maybe say something somewhat brief about the first and the third, and I know the second could be a little uh, a little uh, longer. Uh, has the United is the United States developing towards a punitive democracy? Uh, yes, <laughs> the concept of the carceral state uh, I think is becoming more and more generalized, and in a way, it is extending almost beyond what Foucault saw in our mm -hmm. in our times. And one of the most important things, if there is to be a democracy that we can live under and live by, is going to have to put an end to it. Very briefly, um, what has happened under Trump in particular is a buildup of the uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol office. And if you know you are a United States resident citizen, keep your eyes on the development of the CBP and ICE uh, Immigration mm -hmm. Customs Enforcement because. Uh, these uh, forces are neither police nor so the army. It is unclear what mm -hmm. ethical rules they stand under, what kind of in rules of engagement they stay under. And uh, there was one point during the uh, Seattle riots or confrontations in May mm -hmm. where a certain group of the CBP were sent and the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, was saying that he had the response, he had the authorization that he could send more. Okay, So uh, this is one of the brilliant points that Hannah Arendt saw, unavoidable not mm -hmm. to talk about her, when she talked about how the Vietnam War uh, came um, uh, to the United States by causing a kind of um, illegality and criminalizing the spread of criminality within the government. That is to say, um, wars, imperialist wars, always take their toll on the body politic as well. Mm -hmm. uh, control at the border seeps into control in the homeland. It just it just there's a sociological rule and history 
history um, shows it uh, to us. Before going to Hannah Arendt, I, I don't quite know really what to say about the question concerning Tibet and uh, Hong Kong. There is an honorable tradition of government in exiles. Uh, this uh, goes back quite quite a, in, in history and um, individuals engaged in these kinds of oppositions are in their convention refugees, if they can prove their case in the strict sense of the term. Uh, the end of human rights, uh, this is, um, no, we're not at the end of human rights, quite to the contrary. Uh, now more than ever, when we have, where we have a chance with the change of the administration in the United States that will have some implications for authoritarian regimes all across the world. Uh, this is not the end time of human rights. The end time of human rights, it's a, it's a long question and I've written about it. Um, I think the most legitimate critique there was the critique against the misuse of human rights in the name of humanitarian interventions. Uh, I think that critique is valid and we have to watch against it, but uh, I think truly it is irresponsible of intellectuals, whatever paradoxes and difficulties human rights may have to speak of an end time of uh, human rights. If anything, right now we have a chance. We have a chance to push against uh, the threat of fascism. And of course, without neglecting in any way social justice, uh, social justice um, uh, issues. So of course, the dilemmas of the 51 convention are very much related to this, uh, to this uh, mood, uh, maybe in so many intellectual circles that Oh, we seem to be tired. Seventy years have passed. UDHR. What have we? What have we achieved? Okay, uh, I understand this, uh, but uh, uh, as I said in my first question, I mean the, these. You know, the the fifty one convention appeals to one of the most fundamental anthropological um, practices, also. In, in, human, in human communities, okay? Uh, that, of, that of hospitality, which is also the foundation of interconnectedness uh, in the, in the uh, world. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we should end on that anthropological note. Um, thank you very much, Professor Ben Habib, for a fantastic lecture and very stimulating discussion. I felt like we were just getting started to get into some deeper issues, but that's the fate of timed conversations. Um, so thank you very much to Professor Ben Habib. Thank you very much also to our audience members. And uh, we'll be together next year in the next year's Human Rights Day lecture. So have a good evening. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>